Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our text this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is not a book that comes up often in my preaching. It's the fifth book in the Bible and the final book of the Pentateuch, or Torah, which makes it a core part of the teaching of Judaism. The book is purported to be the farewell sermon that Moses gives that he speaks to the Israelites before they enter the Promised Land. This particular text promises that God will raise up prophets in Israel long after Moses is gone. These prophets will lead the people and serve as a conduit between God and Israel. But the text begs the question, what will this type of prophecy look like? What should we be on the lookout for? How do we know when we find such a prophet? This text is not talking about a prophet in the form of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Those prophets and others that we read about in the Old Testament are prophets who are out on their own. They are voices crying out in the wilderness. Isaiah and Jeremiah are speaking truth to power. They are outside the power structure and questioning how Israel and Judah are being run. Now, the prophet we read about here in Deuteronomy is someone whom God lifts up from within the community, from within the power structure. They are to be prophets in the mold of Moses, who himself was the leader of the community. Further, the text asserts that people must discern whether these prophecies are true. The promised prophet will not necessarily be in the position of Moses. He or she will not necessarily be the spiritual leader of the community. But they will be voices within the community and for the community. Now, it's no secret that I am a huge fan of the congregational way. I was raised a congregationalist, explored other denominations in divinity school, and then returned to the fold in ever more eager and committed congregationalists. This text speaks to why I am such a diehard for the denomination. You have some denominations, like the Roman Catholic Church, that put their faith in the hierarchy of the church. You have bishops and archbishops and other prelates of the church. There's a lot to be said for these top-down models of doing church. They can be more efficient. <laughs> Anyone who's been in a long congregational meeting can appreciate that. They have clear guidelines for dealing with doctrinal differences. They are keepers of tradition and orthodoxy. That's wonderful, but it's not for me. And on the other hand, you have denominations like the Quakers, or certain charismatic sects. These denominations are the anti-hierarchy. Instead, uh, instead, they believe in the power of the inner light, or the ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit. I love these denominations for their radical democracy, their spontaneity, and their capacity to follow wherever the Spirit leads. Then you have a denomination like the Congregationalists and the United Church of Christ. We believe that the Holy Spirit moves through each believer. We make decisions based on the will of the gathered congregation. In that respect, we are much like the Quakers and certain charismatic Christians. We believe in democracy because we believe in people, 
and the ways in which God speaks through people. Now at the same time, congregationalists are eminently, perhaps too much so at times, rational. We believe in the life of the mind as well as that of the spirit. There's a reason why I wear an academic gown when I get up to preach. We believe that there is value in careful and deliberate thought, guided by the wisdom of the ages. And yet, we are careful to say that ministers in the congregational church are not specially imbued with the powers of the Holy Spirit. I am called to be your preacher, not because I'm holier than you are, (laughs) or because I have some special conduit to God. Alas, (laughs) if only that were the case. I am here because you believe that I have gifts for preaching and teaching, and because I've studied the faith deeply. This creates a unique polity structure. On the one hand, we honor tradition and order through preaching, deliberation, and the life of the mind. On the other hand, we believe the Holy Spirit is equally present in all of us, so that it is the will of the congregation that is primary. We are less rigid than Presbyterians, for example, even though they are our close denominational cousins. I would argue that our text from Deuteronomy speaks directly to our tradition. We believe in the ongoing revelation of God, that God will continue to speak to us in new ways through the ages. God is still speaking. God will raise up prophets among us. These prophets might be clergy, and they might be lay people. I would go one step further and say that we all might be prophetic sometimes and not prophetic at other times. That is why we value the voice of the congregation and why we discern, as the text instructs us, what might be prophecy from God and what might not be. Now, in its 400-year history, the congregational way has an impressive legacy and our polity structure has played a major role in that legacy. Congregationalists have been some of the leading theological voices in the United States. The life of the mind, that careful discernment of the spirit, has always been important to the tradition. Harvard, Yale, Amherst, Williams, Bowdoin, Oberlin, Grinnell, Carleton are just a few of the many congregational colleges and universities that have been established across the country. This emphasis on education has been balanced with its non-doctrinal and loose polity structure, which prompts creative thinking. Not having a rigid hierarchy or creeds has allowed our theologians to be trailblazers in their time. Jonathan Edwards revolutionized theology in the 18th century. Nathaniel Taylor, Edwards Amasa Park, and Horace Bushnell were giants of 19th century theology. In the 20th century, Congregationalists were early adopters of every major leading theological trend in American Christianity. And it was the democratic polity of the Congregational churches that gave rise to the New England town meetings, which laid the groundwork for the American Revolution. It was no accident that the Revolution began in Boston, and that the biggest proponents of independence were New Englanders public education, abolition, the social gospel, the civil rights movement, and the liberation movements of the late 20th century all had strong and leading support among Congregationalists. 
the structure of congregational churches, with their openness to the movement of the Spirit, combined with their respect for the life of the mind, were essential aspects of these achievements. Our tradition has lived out this text in Deuteronomy 18 in real and concrete ways. All of this leads me to a basic question. (laughs) Given how much we all love the basic principles that have guided our particular brand of Christianity, why has the denomination struggled so much in the last 50 years? Here is a denomination that listens closely to where God is still speaking. Here is a denomination that has the flexibility to change and adapt due to its congregational polity. Here's a denomination that has been a leader among Christian churches in the United States and has had an influence that far outstrips its relatively small numbers. So what's happened? Why has the denomination declined in numbers every year since 1962? How might you answer that question? Part of the reason, no doubt, has been the trends that we have seen in mainline Christianity across the board. The Congregationalists and the United Church of Christ, of which we are a proud member, are certainly not alone. Our denominations, other denominations, have struggled as well. Christianity is far less culturally accepted than it once was. There was a time when it was assumed that everyone would belong to a church. Those days are long gone, especially in the Northeast and other places where Congregationalists have the most churches. Younger people are less involved in churches than at any time in our nation's history. All of these trends certainly play a role in this decline that I find so disturbing. And yet, when I talk to people about what we stand for, about what we believe, a lot of people affirm our values and our way of approaching faith. We are not tradition-bound. We are non-credal and celebrate the fact that our faith evolves over the course of our lives. Like so many in the younger generation, we espouse progressive values and broad inclusion of people. We don't condemn non-Christians to hell. We embrace science and contemporary biblical criticism. Congregations like FCC change people's lives for the better. We connect people to God. We encourage deep thought and questions about what matters. So what's gone on? How do we explain these trends of declining membership? There are many reasons that have been put forth for the decline of the main line. Having spent my entire life in this denomination, I have my own views as to the root sources of our broader decline. And And if we care about our church, which I know we all do, it behooves us to wrestle with these questions openly and honestly. We can only continue to be a vital force for progressive Christianity if we rigorously examine what has been going on. Now, one reason I would put forth for the broader decline of the UCC and the Congregationalists is that we do not do a good job of raising up prophets from our midst. In this case, I mean specifically how we encourage and support those who are seeking ordained ministry. Successful churches need good leaders. Do we do a good job of seeking out and encouraging people to enter the ministry, particularly young people? 
Several generations ago, entering the ministry was seen as an honorable profession. Parents would burst with pride if their sons, sadly, then it was sons, entered seminary or divinity school. The ministry was seen alongside other professions like law and medicine. Is that still the case now? Would you as a parent be equally proud if your son or daughter became a minister as if he or she became a doctor or a lawyer? Out of my class at Harvard College, which had 650 graduates, only four or five of us entered the ministry that I'm aware of. The really ambitious went into investment banking, management consulting, law school or medical school. Part of this phenomenon is due, no doubt, to the much lower salary potential that ministry offers. But I also had plenty of classmates who did Teach for America, the Peace Corps, government service or nonprofit work. When I told my parents that I wanted to go to divinity school, initially they were not happy about the decision. Now I give my parents credit that over time they changed their viewpoint and became big supporters of my calling. I sincerely appreciate that. It means a lot. Yet, even though we went to church every Sunday growing up, entering the ministry was never something that my parents talked about or celebrated. I give Bob Tucker, the senior minister emeritus here at FCC, a lot of credit in this regard. Bob took it as a point of pride that FCC sent so many people to ordain ministry over his long tenure here. When Bob retired and the church set up a fund and the endowment in his honor, Bob requested that the money from his fund went to support candidates for ministry. If we love the church and the tradition as much as we do, what can we be doing to encourage and support more people considering calls to ministry? That is one thing that evangelical churches do a much better job of. If we want to thrive, raising up prophets from within our midst, raising up those who feel called to preach and teach and serve the church, that matters. A second factor in the decline of the UCC has been a lack of focus on the building up of the institution of the church. Institutions, justifiably, <laughs> get a lot of criticism. Institutions tend to focus on the continuation of the institution. The more powerful an institution gets, the greater the abuses that tend to emerge. One particularly public example today is the National Rifle Association. As it gained power, wealth, and political prominence, the leaders of the institution began to abuse their power. We see a similar and far more tragic example in the case of the Roman Catholic Church and the clergy abuse scandal there. I can see why people tend to distrust institutions. Yet at the same time, institutions are what give rise to ministry. Strong and well-run institutions can have a far greater impact than any one individual. Congregationalists used to be great institution builders. The American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions was, was the first foreign missionary enterprise established in the United States. In its heyday in the 19th century, the American Board sent missionaries to Turkey, the Hawaiian Islands, China, South Africa, and India to name just a few of its major missions. In the 1850s, the American Board was raising over $350,000 per year to further its aims. 
Those numbers are mind-blowing when you actually go back and look, about what that, look at what that meant. Congregationalists, along with the Presbyterians, built that institution. Congregationalists also established the American Home Missionary Society to plant churches across the United States. And it was the successor body to the American Home Missionary Society that helped provide funding and support for the founding of FCC back in 1955. Congregationalists built the American Missionary Association, first to further abolition of of slaves, and then later to found black churches and colleges throughout the American South after the Civil War. Pilgrim Congregational Church, which is next to Texas Southern University, is one of the many churches that the AMA supported. Congregationalists supported the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which accomplished the seemingly impossible when they successfully banned alcohol sales throughout the United States. (laughs) You may appreciate that or not, but institutions did that. Uh, When Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to further the cause of civil rights, what did he do? He established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Institutions matter. And yet, over the past 50 years, the UCC and the Congregationalists have tended to focus so much on social justice ministries that they have neglected institution building within the church. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States and has been one of the fastest growing cities in the United States over the past 60 years. And yet, how many churches has the UCC planted in the Houston area since 1960? To my count, just two. Plymouth Church in Spring and Cathedral of Hope of Houston, now St. Peter United. One of the fastest growing churches in this area is Hope City Church. When that church was founded a few years ago, it was founded with generous support. The founding clergy all had full-time salaries and they also had thorough training in church planting. The church had a slick band, which they paid for, and a production crew, which they prayed for, as well as a full marketing department and budget. Hope City was founded in the same way you might found a successful business expansion. That took institutional investing. And you know what? Shockingly, it's thrived as a result. What would happen if the UCC did the same thing? But do we care? about founding churches or building up the institution of the church? A few years ago, I asked the FCC endowment to give a grant to a new church plant outside Austin. Now, our endowment, mind you, has a policy of giving away 50% of its grants to organizations outside FCC. And yet, when I made that ask, it was the first time that the endowment had ever supported a church plant. Think about that. Here is the endowment that is committed to helping outside our walls, and it has never had the goal to help build churches. Other nonprofits, they're seen as worthy. Why aren't other churches? What we do here matters, but we have to believe in the importance of institution building and commit to doing it. A third factor in the decline of the UCC has been a reluctance to change. Churches are notorious for their resistance to change of almost any sort. As has been quoted many times, the seven last words of a dying church are, we have always done it that way. Not long after I arrived at FCC, I changed the location of the choral anthem from after the reading of scripture to the offertory. 
I promptly received a note from a member of the choir that said I was ruining the church with this move. <laughs> now, the note was a lot more colorful than that, <laughs> but I'll spare you the details. Ironically, the anthem used to be during the offertory, but this choir member was not in the choir when that had been the case. There is a great benefit to a long history. Congregationalists have a long and distinguished history. But there's also a great danger in a long history. It makes people reluctant to try new and bold initiatives. For all its progressive thinking about social issues, the UCC has been painfully slow to adopt successful church strategies from our evangelical brothers and sisters. It was only five years ago that the national setting of the UCC started offering websites out of the box to its for its churches to use. Only five years ago. Our denomination has a long and proud tradition. I love the congregational way and the values it embodies, and I appreciate so much about the UCC. We are a denomination that believes that God will continue to raise up prophets in our midst. God is still speaking. I think that we, we have a crucial witness to offer the broader community. And there's so much amazing, life-changing ministry that we do and will do in the future. But we also need to think deeply about how we can do the church as best we can. To that end, after worship today will be our annual meeting. This is something that I dearly love and value. It is so much a part of our tradition. We get to see the congregation wrestle with how to be the church for our present moment and going forward. The annual meeting always inspires me. Now today, we have some particularly momentous things to discuss. We have a bold new strategic plan for 2021, which outlines a visioning process for the church. If we adopt that process, we will try to zero in on what makes us unique as a church and how we can build on that to transform the community around us. We will also discuss a staff restructuring plan. I know this plan calls for a big change in the way the staff functions, and there's a lot of emotion around the proposal. The mark of a healthy church is the ability to discuss difficult issues with love and compassion. And I'm glad we'll have a chance to discuss this. The Staff Church Relations Committee has done a thorough review of the workflow in the church and the tasks that need to be done. Out of that analysis, they are proposing the creation of a new position, the Director of Administration and Membership, that will allow us to function better and to fulfill our mission more effectively. I hope you will listen to the members of the committee and try to understand the rationale for the change. We will also discuss the David Nickel bequest and talk about bequests in general to the church. This is a great opportunity for us to think boldly about how we can use that money to honor David and also his love for FCC. The annual meeting will be a great testament to who we are and how we have tough conversations about the church that we love so much. I believe, and I believe firmly, that we have a great future ahead of us. Let us continue to raise up prophets in our midst. Let us focus on building the institution of the church so we can do more good work. Let us embrace change and audacious thinking for the future. The world needs the witness of FCC. It needs all of you. We need more Moseses to lead us.